first scripture reading this morning is from the 15th chapter of Genesis, beginning on page 11 in the Old Testament of your pew Bible. Genesis 15, 1 through 12, 17 through 18. God's covenant with Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but you, your own issue, shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars. If you are able to count them, then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word.
Thank you, choir. That was terrific. Ninth chapter of Luke, starting in verse 37. Um, my apologies, I'm going to end at verse 48, though the verse I gave to Jen to type in the bulletin was 49, uh, but uh, we're going to stop at the end of the paragraph at 48. Luke 9. On the next day, the day before being the experience of the Mount Transfiguration, on the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a great crowd met Jesus. Just then a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. Suddenly a spirit seizes him, and all at once he shrieks. It convulses him until he foams at the mouth and mauls him and will scarcely leave him. I, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon dashed him to the ground in convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all were astounded at the greatness of God. While everyone was amazed at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands. They did not understand this saying. Its meaning was concealed for them, so they could not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, aware of their inner thoughts, took a little child and put it by his side and said to them, Whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me me for the least among you is the greatest the gospel of the lord turn your hearts in prayer with me 
As the words of Scripture sometimes echo images that are so foreign to our words, we ask that your spirit move in our hearts so we can see behind the dissonance, the shared humanity, the common promise, the unchanging and universal love as given to us in Christ. Amen. Through the miracle of modern telecommunications, once again we have front row seats as witnesses to something that we would like to believe was no longer possible for modern humanity. That is the horror of siege warfare. Something we'd like to confine to the pages of medieval history books. I say once again because the images coming from Ukraine have a grisly parallel to images that we have seen in our lifetime. We've observed them before. But those images resonate not as much as these do. These are images of a more westernized civilization. Their surroundings include shopping malls and restaurants and high-rise apartment buildings and tech firms. And they all conspire to resonate with greater empathy than the ones we have seen from places like Syria or Iran or Afghanistan, which thankfully, to our own emotional protection, had an air of distant unreality to them. Those were those were that other place, that strange, exotic other place where people treat each other that way. This isn't Aleppo or Grozny or Kurdistan. These are Ukrainians. We only have to drive about 25 minutes, 40 in bad traffic, to the corner of Chicago and Western. And where are we? We're in Ukrainian village, where the language of these refugees is spoken in the streets to no surprise or dissonance to our ears. We watch with horror transfixed by the image of people fleeing for their lives, taking only what is on their backs. We're inspired by just everyday citizens taking up arms, defending their homes. Such courage. As software engineers, welders, account executives, brewers all take positions in the streets of their own hometowns standing as warriors, and a former television comedian evolves before our eyes into a heroic symbol of defiance. We collectively hold our breath, hoping against hope that something will transform these underdogs into victors, and that somebody will find the opportunity to depose a tyrant, he who shall not be named. In order to calm our fears, we turn to the words of no less than Mr. Rogers, the words that echo in our little preschooler frightened hearts. We diligently seek out the helpers, look for the helpers. Thank God for Poland, which in less than three weeks has absorbed a population of refugees the size of the entire city of Chicago with its 2.7 million people. But the cynical side of me finds these images, while noble, not completely comforting, given the scale of the violence wrought to satisfy the illusions of empire.
I shuddered as I wrote these words, even as I shudder speaking them now. I shudder because I'm a pastor. This room is called a sanctuary. You came here this morning to hear about hope and peace and love and joy. And it seems rude of me to bring the outside world in. This hour is supposed to be a break from all of the chaos outside of these walls and outside of this hour. Just a few moments where we could come inside and forget about our cares and woes and think about Jesus. Except this hour is going to end. You'll have to go back out into the world. And when you go back out, there are going to be wars that rage people who suffer and stuff that happens. What goes on in here has to somehow speak to what's going on out there. Otherwise, the church becomes a great irrelevance, an opiate that numbs us from the realities of pain. We are not about pain relief, my friends. We are about true healing. And the grand wheel of fortune that is the lectionary cycle, (laughs) the the almost random feel to it, it is a three-year cycle, and we come back to these texts again. Dave said at the beginning of the service, it's kind of weird, but I've read this Hebrew Scripture passage in worship before. We figured out it was probably somewhere around ten years ago in the three-year cycles in which he has served as an assistant And we find Abram, whose name later became Abraham. Abraham is complaining to God because God has promised that he is going to become a great nation. So he promises in the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis. Lots of descendants is the promise to Abraham. He would never be forgotten. And a grant of offspring and land beyond his comprehension and his understanding. But there is a problem because so far Abraham has absolutely no children. How could he be father of a great nation if he doesn't even start with one kid? Abraham is one of the strangest characters in Scripture, but the fact that we are saying his name, and you've heard it before, means the promise turned out to be true. He would not be forgotten. His offspring would extend beyond imagination. And here we are reading about one of the most bizarre nights in history. The day before he slept, God tells Abraham to bring three animals, a heifer and a goat and a ram, each of them three years old. We could spend hours trying to figure out what the significance of three animals in three years are. I'm not sure that would help, but there was also a turtle dove and a pigeon. What do they symbolize? I don't know. Abraham sacrifices the animals, placing the larger ones in two halves, with an aisle between each half as they face one another, the sides of meat freshly butchered in a little walkway, ending with a bird on either side of the same path. The hand-cutting of these beasts took most of the day, as you could imagine. And as the sun begins to set, Abraham has to shoo off the vultures and other birds of prey who thought this was their buffet. Unfortunately for us to understand the text and have some semblance of what's going on, we have to travel back into ancient times to an unfamiliar age of tribes and warriors and treaties that were sealed in blood. Fortunately, your preacher went to a divinity school where scholars have received lifetime job security for discerning this ancient trivia. 
Uh, somebody got tenure for figuring this out. Their real historians taught me about ancient Middle Eastern treaties where clans of people called Assyrians and Hittites and Elamites sealed peace deals through a divided blood sacrifice. The primitive tradition was this. When two warring factions were finally too exhausted to continue fighting, they decided to end the fighting with something called a truce, and they would hold a solemn ceremony to symbolize that they had come to the end of their war. A new border between the territories would be established, and the great chiefs would stand and sacrifice animals from their own herds, placing the divisions of the carcass on either side of the new border which had been laid. One half of the animal on one and one on the other. The new demarcated real estate plumb line set aright. And a declaration of peace would be announced and the terms of the treaty would be read. And the kings and their armies would walk between the divided sacrifices. And as they walked, they looked into the split body cavities of the animals and would announce, may the same happen to me and to my descendants if we were to ever violate the terms of this new division. So they're in context. Abraham has created an ancient title and trust office, and he is prepared for the ancient contract signing sealed in the blood of the animals, and he waits. So long does he wait that he falls asleep when night comes. And in the middle of the night, he is startled to witness a smoke and fire a pot of smoke and a torch of fire going back and forth between the carcasses that he had laid out, marking the lines of a contract, of a process, of a treaty. God's own presence confirming the covenant. Except, unlike in human contracts, Abraham is not invited to walk with God. This is a one sided agreement. God alone confirms this treaty. Abraham only witnesses its signature. If the contract is broken, only God will suffer the consequences, given the symbolism that Abraham would have understood. Fast forward through generations of Hebrew scriptures where covenant and promise are affirmed by God again and again and again until we see Jesus, a Palestinian Jew, a rabbi, trying to explain covenant to his band of unruly students. A man comes with his son, seized by a spirit that threatens to destroy him. The students had attempted to heal the boy, but they were ineffectual. Jesus, on the other hand, merely rebukes the spirit and returns the boy healed and whole to his father. And as the text tells us, all were astonished at the greatness of God. And while they were all amazed, Jesus tries to explain to them that he himself is going to become a sacrifice to be betrayed by human hands and given over to suffering and death. But they get none of it. Some of them have just seen the glory of God on Mount Transfiguration, the fire and the smoke akin to the visions of Abraham. All of them have just seen the healing of a little boy split by seizures, bringing horror to his family and now completely undivided, put back together, totally healed. 
They were witnesses to the absolute powerlessness in the presence of disease, in the presence of powers that would take the life of their teacher. And what do they do? They have witnessed the smoke and the fire of the presence of God. They have witnessed the miraculous healing of a boy rent asunder by seizures. What do they do? The very next verse tells us too clearly an argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. How absurd. How familiar. Fast forward again and listen. Listen to the pages of your news feed and hear the echo. An argument arose as to which one of them was the greatest. Completely losing track of Abraham as his witness to a treaty of peace where it is only God who brings an end to division, who causes war and violence to cease. Just when we as humans think that we've got it solved, that we've evolved so that we have rendered violence and war completely obsolete, just then an argument arises as to which one is the greatest. And here we are. Who is the greatest? Jesus answers his own question. Whoever welcomes a little child in my name welcomes me. For the least among you is the greatest. May God alone who brings silence to war be our peace and forgive our violent selves. Amen. Amen. My, uh, my prayer, I have to confess, isn't particular, particularly Christianly. My, my prayer involves a well-placed assassin's bullet or a well-timed myocardial infarction. That's, that's where my human prayer goes, as is often the case when the unjust seems to overwhelm the just. I, I have to confess that. My calculation in my prayers, I have to confess, is some sort of expedient act that renders all of this just a brief little nightmare. It all stops, and we can get back to life as we want it. That's my prayer, and I also have to say that that prayer is profoundly selfish because I find all of this very troubling and distracting. After all, you know, it's uh, an hour less sleep this weekend, and so we need to think about ourselves. Somehow imagining a world in which we have to think beyond ourselves and not just think of the expedience of making it all go away 
does honestly feel a little unchristian, but that is my confession today. I don't like it. I don't want to look at it. I wish we had the luxury of people thousands of years ago where the other side of the planet could blow up and you wouldn't know. But yet we're here. And somewhere in that prayer for myself, I suddenly find the Lenten discipline of helplessness. Helplessness. We talk about it each and every week when we gather and request our prayers. What on earth do you do with a 39-year-old brand-new mother who succumbs to cancer and leaves behind a husband and a baby without a mom? Helplessness. What do we do when we have a loved one who is racked with pain and seems to find no healing through the instruments of medical science or someone whose age is constantly told, well, you're about that age. I guess you're just going to have to live with it. What on earth? It's, it's, it's helplessness. Our prayers often are asking God to change that equation. Make us more powerful, O Lord. Give us victory over our enemies, whether they are disease or knuckleheads. But that's not what God promises to give us. God doesn't promise to give us victory by our hand. Promise comes to merely say, I will be the author of peace, not only in the world, but in our hearts. The profound imagery of Abraham seeing only God go between the carcasses, I think, is a prayer reminder to us that our true peace is found in the profound one-sidedness of God's promise. Had Abraham walked between the carcasses, then he would have been on the hook to be able to make it as true as if God was. That is not the God we serve. The answer to our prayers is not necessarily going to be our dominance. The peace that we seek is not necessarily going to be from our victory. Our peace, our hope, is only in the hands of God. And the more quickly we let go of the illusions of our instrumentality, the more quickly we can rest where God would have us. The place in which God says, you are mine. And I will not leave, and I will not forsake. If you came today with a prayer on your heart that you would like to share with the community of faith so that we may stand with you, sometimes in that very helplessness, please speak your words. If you have a joy, I'm not going to squelch those either. Anyone? I was going to sort of complain about my arthritic left hand, but it seems pretty trivial now, so keep it to myself. You know what? Here's the, here's the amen of the prayer. God doesn't expect you to fix it. Just letting you know, God doesn't expect you to fix it. Let's pray. As the heathen rage, as the psalmist wrote, we want to know why. Why do the heathen rage? Why do they fight with each other? Why do they put up these menacing activities that 
end up hurting real people with real lives who had other things to do today besides flee war. We would like to think that there's a linear cause and go back to the evil hearts of just one or two, perhaps a, an imperious dictator, perhaps a small table of oligarchs, perhaps some other cloaked image that we would say, aha, here is the evil, if we could stamp that out. But in some small ways, all of us have announced our own dominance as we have argued and tried to win that we were greater than others, albeit not with the weapons of war in our hand, but certainly destructive words and obliterating callousness. There is, O oh Lord, something that you want us to learn from war, and that is not that there are good guys and there are bad guys, but that there are only hurting guys and girls and children. And that as we inflict pain on one another, probably the greatest pain that is experienced in the cosmos is the pain of your heart that looks upon it and says, these are my children. We ask for your divine intervention and pray for the miraculous transformation of hearts and also actions. That is our prayer. We would lie if we said otherwise. Regardless of the motivations, regardless of the confusion, we would like there to be peace. But more often than not, we only perceive peace at the hands of someone being crushed and others being exalted, and for that we ask your forgiveness. Not that we become naive pacifists, but that we understand the complexity that your children are at war with one another. And we, we hurt another. We are damaging and injuring our kin. In this Lenten season, may we find in our hearts a capacity to rest even more peacefully in your promise and to turn our confusion even our sense of injustice and helplessness over to you. We ask, O oh Lord, that we not seek to even the score, but we pray even more deeply to heal the wounds so that that which has been broken may be knit together, that which is seized violently can be seated and clothed in its right mind and returned to family in peace. Even as we trust in the Prince of Peace, Christ our Lord, who taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine